The Silent Killer of the Marshes The Quiet Men of England, Number 1 Melton Constable In which we are introduced to the great man, in whose august frame we may trace a synecdoche of the village of Wesley Turpin its very self. Whither the Albion of yesteryear, stanchling the moon under water, as Arthur chases nuns on bicycles down the road as they pedal towards Evensong in the fog? Whither the Thatchers, the Barleymo, the Squire, the Liege and the Leaf, the Mixamatosis and the Mad Hatters? Come then, my lickspittle fawning tea siphons, come one, come all, to the England of yore. To the Shire, the hundred-acre wood, the black rolling hills, and the blasted heath. Come bide a while with the drunken yokels on park benches, whose very slats commemorate the bestest, the brightest, and the most beautiful of merry England. Oh, what passes for it. Let us, dear listener, repair once more to the improbable hearths and homes of Wesley Turpin. We start, as custom and manner decrees, at the beginning, remembering, as is only right and proper, that no story of this village can start without mention of the inimitable and undaunted frame of Melton Constable. Melton Constable looked excitedly at the tip of his rod. It was definitely twitching. His usual beatific countenance bore a trace of peculiar concern and disquiet. Lion was straining, definitely. Melton Constable sat forward gingerly on his stool and took hold of his pole with quick and hesitant fingers. Stay the buffs, he thought to himself. Faint heart, etc., old boy. You never know. This may indeed be a fair lady. This last was said aloud with a grunt as he pulled the rod back and wound the reel cautiously in. May had given way in mellow, appreciative tones to the still warmth of early June, and the turpentine was swollen with late spring rain. It burbled noisily over the small race of the crook in the stream as it gambled gaily past the foot of Melton Constable's back garden. Here, nestling in a pergola of willowed green and hazy sunshine, the eminence grise of Wesley Turpin was often to be found, bait-box at his side, his ample posterior athwart a small raffia workstool, with a faraway look in his eyes. It had been some fifty summers back, when the bait-box, then pristine, was first taken down to the water's edge by an eager and excited young constable. Fifty years. He could scarcely believe it himself. Even the herons skulking in the rushes nearby seemed surprised. Everyone in Wesley Turpin, even the heron, nay, even the fish, was aware of Melton Constable's inability to land so much as a stickleback. For fifty summers he had taken the long walk down through the orchard and across the water lawns to the old stone staircase, with its orbs and unusual statuary. 
down the five steps, and on to the bank where, as now, the rills of the stream rushed down the race from the old water mill. For fifty summers he had sat with his hook baited and his breath baited. There had been plenty of near misses and enough anecdotes to fill a book. Melton Constable, though, being the man of immense good cheer that he was, had rarely felt anything more than a pang of regret that he had never caught that fish. He enjoyed the warm summer breeze, the smell of jasmine rolling in his mind, the dappled shadows of the willows and the rainbow slash of the kingfisher from the opposite bank. From the corner of his eye, he noted, the heron, that silent assassin of the river bank, had lowered its head, still in the hunt, so that only the crest and a sullen, attentive eye were visible over the reeds. Softly, Melton Constable eased his massive frame upright, the rod held fast in one giant paw. The other, with fingers as nimble as they were huge, began to wind in with ever more firm twists of the reel. Then, without warning, the trout broke water, a silver rainbow gleam from its scales as sunlight caught it in an emoted beam. It struggled with the hook in its mouth and fought with powerful slashes of its tail to break free from its lure. Melton Constable's disquiet manifested itself now in a cold sweat that burst forth from the pores of his palms, and a distinct shake took hold of him as his adrenal glands dumped enough hormone into him to run a mile and wrestle a tiger at the end. He took an endless moment to compose himself and gently, ever so gently, brought the fish clear of the water. Deftly, he slid the landing net beneath the quarrelsome prey and eased it onto dry land. Melton Constable sat back on his stool, took a large spotted handkerchief from his pocket, and, after wiping his brow, blew his nose long and loud with a triumphant toot that shook the riverbank with its violence. The trout was expiring. It was ceasing to be, and the choir eternal, swarming with obese women, were warming their pipes. At that moment, the heron, which had been regarding proceedings with something of a professional eye, flew into action. It loomed into view, a silent blue-gray messenger of death. It rose silently from its berth among the reeds, and with a few flaps of its powerful wings had gained the opposite bank, its neck coiled over its back. It alighted in a flash, and with a yellow slash of predatory precision, it stabbed downwards and, with one movement, hoiked up its pescatarian prize and channeled it headfirst down its gullet. The air seemed to hang pregnant. All was still. Even the lazy arcing flight of the dragonfly seemed to pause in the hazy June sunshine. The pause button was pushed to the floor. The fox was at bay, and England turned over once in its muggy blanket and fell asleep. All save our hero. All save that stout yeoman of the parish, that bastion of all that was proper and decent. All save Melton Constable. With an ejaculation and a stentorian bellow of Sapristi Bastardo, Melton Constable was up on his pins and, demonstrating a remarkable agility quite in contrast with his portly frame, leapt towards the bird. Now, you and I, we denizens of the suburbs, are quite familiar with the startled shriek and bustle of the songbird. They'll readily take flight at the mere sight of a flannel gentleman approaching the kitchen window. 
your large bird, conversely, with more momentum to create and more kinetic energy to support to flee, needs a starting gun or prompt. Moreover, it can be said, and indeed has been by some of the most eminent avian experts, that to startle a heron mid-snack is the only way to catch the silent killer of the marshes. Thus it was with our feathered friend and Melton Constable. With a zesty haste, uncommon to a man of his age and girth, but nevertheless in keeping with his martial past, Melton Constable seized the avian menace by what, undoubtedly, the heron's kith would call the scruff of its neck. He, in fact, seized it by the appendage most available for seizing, namely the throat. The heron would have gulped had its peristaltic motion been allowed to operate unhindered. Given that was impossible... It essayed a look of incredulous alarm, and thrashed both wings and legs in startled fury. Me, an apex predator, held as such, he seemed furiously to mime. Melton Constable was unmoved. Imperturbable as a looking-glass, he stood, arm-extended heron in situ. The impasse seemed unbreakable. A futile Zugzwang. If Melton Constable let slip his grasp, the heron was the victor, and to the victor the spoils of a strap-based lunch would surely follow. If the heron refused to cough up its stolen repast, it would surely join the trout in the heavenly host. What then would mortal man or bird do? Melton Constable was no mere mortal, no wage slave, no petty nine-to-fiver. He was a man of storied past, and even of gentried caste. In his veins ran the blood of those who had been to Agincourt, with those who had fallen at Blenheim, Waterloo, and Victoria, chasing the 551 to Dorking Deep Dean. He fixed the bird with a glittering eye, and a steely, if convivial stare that brooked no argument. The bird, lacking options, returned the gaze. Melton Constable, Heron Murmurer we name you, spoke with soft, determined voice. He eschewed plosives and fricatives, and stuck to the sibilance favoured by the feathered flock. Barely moving his ample jaws and letting his dewlaps rest serenely, Melton Constable whispered to the heron not only soft words of impending violence to its feathered form, but hazily sketched promises of sunlit uplands, barely dreamed of by even the swift or the albatross. The heron cocked its plumed head in tacit understanding. Now, we are not Melton Constable, so we can never know exactly the look of understanding that passed between bird and man. The bird, though, understood, and with due deference bowed its head. The trout fell lifeless from its gullet, and Melton Constable's grasp fell slack. Melton Constable withdrew to the jetty that sat more yards to the left. In one hand he held a lifeless fish— with the other, he bade the waiting predator follow. Follow it did, with a mix of curiosity and hunger bedeviling its feathered brow, until they came to the jetty, whereon was tied a small coracle. 
Melton Constable gingered aboard, one hand aloft with his prized fish and the other steadying his frame by grasping a gunnel or two. Once becalmed, he placed the fish in the prow and softly beckoned the heron aboard. It followed with a stalking gait that was both supremely confident and utterly bewildered. On deck, Melton Constable drew himself to his full height and cast off imperiously. He saluted the heron nonchalantly as they came about the midstream and pointed towards the water with a genial finger and a soft, hidden word. The heron hopped into the bowsprit and, on doing so, turned to our hero who rewarded him with a trout. Such sacrifice! Yet method there was in his sacrificial madness. Deftly taking the rudder and steering their craft into the fast-running current of the river, Melton Constable whispered to the heron as they came to a stop. The heron bowed its head three times in avian comprehension and with a grey shudder disappeared into the clear water. It emerged within a second, a silvery prize in its beak and deposited it writhing on the deck of the boat. If ever a heron could have smiled wryly, it would have done so then, in that sparkling summer light, as the beaming face of Melton Constable shone upon it with no small measure of professional pride. From that day forth, Melton Constable binned both bait box and rod, and would sally forth to the bank weekly, where he would board the boat and wait for the heron to alight on the bow, before moving steadily, silently into the deep water for a fine and rewarding hunt. An enduring mystery to those who dined upon spankingly fresh trout at Melton Constable's table for many years to come. Sorry, is it is it heron or heron? Heron, heron. Oh no, clean it up and post. The Quiet Men of England is a very broad and very shallow production, written by Brian Painting, performed by Charlie Moriarty, with original music recorded and played by Peter Vincent Ridden.